Gospel of John, chapter 20. Read along with me, if you would, please, starting at verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, by the way, the guy's writing this, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb, so they both ran together, but the other disciple, I remind you the one who's writing this, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. <laughs> and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, they did not go in. Then Simon, Peter, came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, again, mind you, was writing this, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own houses or homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said, You are woman, which is a term of respect. Why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to a woman, Again, a term of respect. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She's supposing him to be the gardener, which apparently would make more sense said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, which is to be translated, Peter. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And I Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord that she had spoken these things to her. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, on this day that is set aside to commemorate your resurrection, we can make it about chocolate and bunnies and eggs and things that mean nothing in any remote comparison. And we can actually, in all of that, get caught up in our roasts and forget the ramifications of your resurrection. And on this particular Sunday, the 1st of April, 2018, we come to you and we say, have at us. Speak to us what we need to hear. Speak into each of our lives and profoundly minister in this time, I pray. May we get it deeper and more meaningfully than we ever have. And for those Marys in this room, be that whatever the case in the way we've come I pray that you would immerse me in your scripture and immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Let this precious family that you bled and died for, let them see you today. And come upon me, God, that you would do through me what only you can do. Minister profoundly now, bespoke to each of our needs, and universally with each of our needs. Speak life into us. May your Holy Spirit convict, convince, challenge, encourage, exhort, equip, remind. 
all the things you intend. And now, Lord, I pray, may this time be perfectly time, perfect time spent. So we commit this to you now. If there be any who have yet to know you, let this be the day of their salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, if there were any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Please never just assume something is true because somehow there's some money or spot behind it. And what more appropriate particular person to focus on than somebody who, by the way, now they've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars, if you will, to create a movie that is to the point, from what I can tell, 90% fiction, or if not more. So how perfectly relevant at a time like this, now I'm not seeing the movie, so I'm, I purposely don't see movies like that, so that when people start to ask me specific questions, I can be ignorant. Uh, and by the way, I've learned this, as long as you know the truth, you can set the boundaries. I don't mind people sort of creating hyperbole around things. We always talk about biblical, extra-biblical, and anti-biblical. Biblical is clearly in the Bible. Anti-biblical is clearly not in the Bible. It's clearly opposed to what you're doing. That area in between, well, that's an area that's just not a hill to die on. But you should really start with at least what you have clearly in Scripture. So let's develop this particular young lady for a moment, at least as the Bible speaks. In the New Testament, there are three predominant women, there are a couple others, but there are three predominant women named Mary. Mariam, like Moses' sister, means bitter for what it's worth. Obviously, the most obvious, the one who gets the most press, is Jesus' mom. And of course, her name is Mary. The second, who may get the least amount of press, is Martha's, Martha's sister, who clearly anoints the feet of Jesus in John 12, verse 3. She gets a little bit of press here and there. But somewhere in between is this precious sister. We meet this girl we know of as Mary Magdalene. Now, she's called Mary Magdalene because she's from Magdala, and it is important to note that. People in those days were, for the most part, identified by parentage or property. We'll find it similar today. We'll read Simon Marjona, which means in Aramaic, Simon the son of Jonah. James the son of Alphaeus, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And we'll find, by the way, since we live in the UK, that Mac and Mick, it all depends if you're Scottish or Irish, means son of. Like McMahon means son of man. That's kind of how that works out. So we still find that today. And there's a reason for that, because you can only name so many guys Bob without trying to figure out which one you're speaking about. We also name people by places. For instance, Jesus himself was identified this way. More than being called Jesus' son of Joseph, he was called Jesus of Nazareth. It was Joseph of Arimathea. It was Simon of Cyrene. And for the, when you, some of you who might be familiar from places like Poland, the surname that ends with the term ski means village of, or from the town of. It's often a symbol of royalty initially. So for instance, when you hear people like Mike Wazowski, it could be saying Mike from the area of Warsaw. Warsawski would be kind of the derivation there. So Mike from Warsaw. That's kind of the idea. And of course, so if we have Jesus of Nazareth, or Joseph of Arimathea, Simon of Cyrene, we also have Mary of Magdala, or we see here is Mary of Magdalene. Magdala, for what you were, and I don't know how many of you are familiar, the word means tower, by the way, Magdala means tower. It's due, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, roughly at about due 9 o'clock from the top. It's kind of to give you an idea. And it was, starting in about 50 BC, when they did their major remodel, the major city on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, until Tiberias was being built in 19 AD. 
In other words, it was the place. Now I can tell you that it had at least 40, 50,000 people in it. And I can tell you that. Oh, well, let me tell you why. First of all, it's the birthplace of a person named Joseph Matisiaku. Maybe you're not familiar with him, but you may know him more by his Roman name, Josephus Flavius, who, by the way, was initially a leader of the Zealots. And that would make a lot of sense for him to not only have been born there, but to spend time there. Because the one thing that Magdal was known for was a hotbed for zealots. A place for people who hated Rome. That, and I can see one of the reasons probably they wanted to build Tiberius so close to it, just south, by the way, of Magdal. It's because they wanted to keep their eyes on this place. Now, among the zealots, there were different kinds of people. There were obviously those who basically would write their blogs in whatever way that was. They were relatively harmless, by the way, for most people. But then there were those that were called the Sikhari. And Sikhari means the nicers. Interestingly enough, they must have come from London, right? So, they were the people who, in essence, would kind of hang out in places like Brixton or Hackney. And then they would wait for a couple of Roman soldiers to go by and then and just kind of find a hole in the armor and go at it. So they were kind of known, by the way, and it's, by the way, to this day in places like Turkish prisons, not that I've been in one, but I'm familiar with some of their rules of regalia, that there are certain places to stab that you can basically, this is a place that's intending to injure, like you stab them in the rear end, that's always a real problem. Uh, but if you go at some place above the waist, it's considered an attempted murder. Uh, and so they, by the way, they kind of, but see, the Romans didn't have those delegations. If you came at them on the night, they just assumed you were trying to kill them. So even if you succeeded or not, you were going to you were going to die anyway. So they thought, well, it might as well be worth it. And I know this, that these people hung out and bred, if you will, in this town of Mantha. Now, for what it's worth, Vespasian will destroy this. He was the emperor in the 60s AD. And he will destroy it in 67 AD. And when he does, 30,400 of the people in that town were sold into slavery, for what it's worth. 6,700 of them died. Another 1,200 of them, 1,200 of them, surrendered. And another 6,000 of them were sent to Nero. Now, that means at least, according to this, just from that record alone, according to Josephus, there were over 44,000 people living there. Because you can't take that many people, kill that many, and send that many people without having them to start with. Now, with that in mind, currently, to give you an idea, roughly less than a third of the people who lived there that used to live there. Now, all we know to start with is this girl's from this town. A town, by the way, that as far as if you were a patriot, you would kind of think that was going to give you some street cred. You know, this was a place to come on, represent. You know, we used to say where I came from originally, if you ain't representing, you're perpetrating. And you know, it's like either you're, you're putting it forth or you're actually standing in the way. And if, to know that, I mean, to say if somebody was from Alexandria, you would thought the person was smart. Kind of like you would say about Oxford. Oh, this person's from Oxford. He's probably brilliant. Well, on the other side, even if a person was from Nadal, you kind of assume, uh-oh, you know, make sure you sleep with one eye open. Now, in the Gospels, this is what we know about the girl. There's one thing that any Bible student knows right off the bat if you were to ask about Mary Magdalene. And the one thing was, she was possessed. Now, she wasn't always possessed, because obviously by the time that we get to the highlight of her, she doesn't appear to be. Because it says, from whom, which means there was a time and it's not now. It tells us for what it's worth in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. By the way, emphasizing this at um, Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
So maybe if you're a little bit more of a Bible student, you'd have been able to tell me that there were seven that were cast from her. Now, can you think of anybody else in Scripture that specifically seven demons were cast out of? I can't, I can't really think of anyone. I can think of a situation where there were seven sons of a, of a priest that tried to cast out one demon and got their, their ends whooped and ran out naked and bleeding. But I can't think of any other place in Scripture where there's actually one person possessed specifically by seven demons. Now, why is that important? Because, gee, it haunts me when I think of this because I can't help but think of a story that Jesus tells us. God speaking in Luke chapter 11, verse 24. He says this, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man and goes through dry places, seeking rest, but it finds none. So he says, I will return to my house from which I came, the house being, of course, the person who was cast out. And when he comes, he finds it swept and in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Now it's important Jesus wants to make clear that he doesn't just want you to come into him as a sort of a life improvement program and the idea is I just want to get my house in order, Jesus, be the ultimate housekeeper. Because to be removed from an addiction or from a problem or a trouble isn't enough. God's not into cleaning your house, God's into moving in. So if such a situation were to occur and they find that the house is now in order and it's swept and it appears to be clean, it's still missing something. It's missing an occupant. And there's the problem. The rest of the world is out there looking to get a house clean at best. But it's not enough. Now, if this is the case, have you ever really thought about this? Could it be I mean, for all of the crazy extra-biblical information that has been put out in this film, could it be this girl was possessed, exercised, and repossessed? I just find it, it is more likely than some of the other things they've certainly played out, and there are some crazy conjectures about the woman. If Jesus were to give such a situation, I can't say, wow, Now, nowhere in Scripture does God tell us how a person gets possessed. Thank you, Lord, for that, because I'm sure people would be trying. So the only person mentioned was seven. And she knows how to be a mess. She knows how to be the crazy Mary. I mean, of all of the other Marys, there's the Mary that you can speak, there's Mary's mom, and then there's the crazy one. She may have seen that craziness leave her twice. She knows hopelessness. She could write a book on it. Interestingly enough, we don't really read much about her until we get to Luke 8. And he says this in Luke 8. Now it came to pass afterward that Jesus went from every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve that were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and the first listed Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And then Yohanan, the wife of Chuza, or Chuza, if you will, Herod's steward, and Susanna, by the way, and many others who provided for him from their substance. The next thing we learn about it, to be honest, is that she was actually a benefactress. In other words, she was a sponsor of Jesus' ministry. 
Now, whether she has been exercised once or twice, what's clear is she knows the power of Jesus' deliverance. And at this point now, she is sponsoring Jesus' ministry with a handful of other gals. It's interesting because Jesus' ministry, at least according to what God mentions in Scripture, seems to be primarily female-funded. Ladies, do not underestimate the power of your influence. Now, we're not passing that, and I'm not saying that here, but I am saying that God clearly mentions them by name. Now listen. From this point until Jesus' crucifixion, we read nothing else with her name on it. Do you know that? There are places we read women or the women, but we read nothing about Mary Magdalene from this point until Jesus is crossed. You know what else is interesting? Have you ever considered the fact you never read about Mary Magdalene in the book of Acts by name? Don't you find that interesting? Unless, not for what it's worth, unless in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it tells us about a guy named John Mark, and he has a mom named Mary. Now, who knows? Could it be the same? It's a 50-50 chance, either it is or it isn't. But, we have nowhere in the epistles where her name is listed or mentioned. The only place you really read about her, for all of the things that have been written about her outside of Scripture, is that this girl was possessed, she's not possessed, she was funding Jesus' ministry, and the events that take place from the cross to the resurrection. That's it. Now, should you find that interesting? In other words, but let's be honest. If you were married, do you think you would want to be known as the formerly possessed girl? I mean, let's face it, that would be a good thing to leave buried. Now, some would actually say that she was a prostitute. Have you ever heard this? Well, marriage is a prostitute. Now, why in the world is that? Well, because there's a particular situation in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 37, when there's a Pharisee named Simon, well, he's actually also a leper, interesting enough, who has a feast at his house, and a girl comes in who is a sinner, and falls to his feet, cries and wipes his feet with her tears, or wipes with her hair after washing them with her tears. Nowhere she listed as Mary, here. There is a Mary that is listed anointing Jesus' feet, but John has made that clear already, that that's actually Mary, the sister of Martha, not the same person. So why did it get this? And Jesus said, well, oh, and, and, and of course, I mean, and these people that are religious leaders are like, well, you know the situation, right? Because, oh, this girl's a sinner, and if this guy were really a prophet, you wouldn't let such a person go near him. Oh, really? Huh. Well, Jesus would say, let me ask you something. There were two guys that owed someone money. They both owed the same guy. Lone shark. Dangerous guy. And, and you know, so what happens, one guy owes him 50 days wages, another guy owes him 500 days wages. And the guy, out of some strange stroke of benevolence, decides to forgive them both. Here's which one do you think would love them more? And of course, the Pharisee goes, well, I suppose the guy that was forgiven more. And he goes, well, let's take a look here. He kind of threw me a piece, that's really cool and all, loose paraphrase, don't just believe me. He goes, you know, but at the end of it all, when I showed up at your house, you didn't even wash me. You didn't have even your servants wash my feet. Which, by the way, would have been the first act of genuine kindness. And it was the first act of genuine hospitality for a person entering your house. He goes, this girl, she did it with her her, her tears. Because, man, when I came, you didn't embrace me and give me that big welcoming kiss that would happen as a family saying, Welcome to my family and my home. This girl's been kissing the nastiest part of me. 
So let me ask you, which one, is, which one of these two seems to have embraced forgiveness more? Now, there's nowhere in it that you read that her name is Mary. There's nowhere it doesn't say either. But then there's one other thing you have to deal with. You have a girl who was formerly possessed, who apparently had a lot of money. How does a possessed gal make a lot of money? Uh, my answer to that probably is that she lives somewhere near Camden. Anyway, but uh, in a situation, please understand, as we draw near to our primary text, please understand, that's all we really get at the moment. Everything else is conjecture. It's all guessing. Now, please understand, there's a general rule of Bible study. And that is, if God doesn't spend an awful lot of time on it, it seems a bit frivolous to do so yourself. Because obviously, it can't be the point, because if it was the point, well, then God would have told you. Well, with that in mind, this is what we do read, though. That somewhere, she's going to have a moment in the limelight. And interesting, that moment is going to be a moment where you wouldn't really want anyone to see you. Well, why is it? Because she's a mess. Tears are flowing, her heart is wrenched. For anyone else, this would have probably been the least presentable moment of your life. But not for Mary. She knows what the problem is as far as that is. She's been a mess before, in a bigger mess than this. If the problem that Mary had was just emotional or mental, well, she was just, you know, if, well, they say it was possession in those days, but if today they would have probably just, you know, let's be honest, they just put her on an antidepressant and she would be fine. Well, let's be honest, absolutely losing Jesus would have sent her way over the limit here. And to be honest, I'm wondering if that's what the guys thought. She would have been back in words. But she really doesn't approach again by name until Matthew 27 or Mark 15 or John 19. And what we read is very simple. That here at the cross stood Jesus' mother, again, a woman named Bitter, the wife of Clopas, who also was named Bitter, and Mary Magdalene. Interesting. At the cross, John, who by the way is there, because that's the next thing he mentions, tells us, you know who was there with? He wasn't just there with Mary, and he wasn't just there with Mary Mary. He was there with Mary Mary Mary. And it was there then that Jesus would hand the responsibility of his mother to John. You'd say, well, wait a minute, but didn't Jesus have at least four brothers? Well, that was clear and evident because people have already said, oh, wait a minute, don't we know this guy? He's the son of the carpenter. I mean, we know his brothers, James, Joe, and Jude, and Simon. We know those guys. So why didn't Jesus just let his next brother handle it? Because up to this point, none of them believed in him, but John did. And what John knew, I'm sorry, what Jesus knew, was handing the care of his mother to a Christian was going to be better care for her than it would have been to hand it to any one of those brothers yet. Hmm. And John saw the whole thing, and there he was with these three gals. And what we read is, this particular Mary was one of the three standing there, watching Jesus' mother being handed to the care now of John. What we read in Mark's Gospel, and what we read in Matthew's Gospel, is not only were they looking from afar and then approaching, for which Mary is listed first in both of those cases, but also when Jesus was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, listed by his, by his uh, village. Mary was there watching. Mary took very careful note of this location. This girl is going to memorize this place. Now, Bring us around now to our primary text here. 
I wonder what that would have been like then on that Sabbath. Have you thought that through? Jesus has been killed. He's been murdered. And you have to sit and do nothing for a whole day. I mean, we've seen the hell of her past, of Mary's past. We see the honor of her provision as she's cared for Jesus in the resource. But now we see the horror of her present. And the last image she saw of that horrible sight of her murdered world changer. He changed her world. Imagine what it would be like to sit in that Sabbath near her at all. The hurricane of her grief and her pain, her hopelessness, the fear. If you were Mary at this moment and you had to deal with Jesus now being dead, would you be afraid of your past coming back at you? I would be. And let's just play that out for a moment. What if Mary had been possessed, delivered, and then Mary had been way worse possessed than she was, as if possession could get worse, but apparently it was. And, and somewhere in that, and then seeing that leave, because one person was the miracle maker, one person was the world changer, and in her life, one person was clear, was the deliverer, and this is what she sees, and now he's dead. What part of it, you know, doesn't think Thor 3, right? Okay, as soon as dad leaves, and then comes the wicked sister. I mean, the idea that, like, all of the things he's done... Are they going to come back now? Could you imagine that? And by the way, there is this place where you watch this settle in on people. As you grapple with the idea, perhaps even in the third time of having your world shattered, something transitions for a moment. As a pastor, there are parts of this, things that you have to do that are a bit rough. Sitting down with a husband or a wife to explain to their, to their spouse that they've been unfaithful. You never want to be there for that. But you'll do that a hundred times over before actually having to sit down and tell someone that their child was killed. And you found out before they did. In Morobay, I had actually gotten a call from the police chief at a moment where a boy had been killed. It was an innocent accident of a person that was rounding a corner, but he was, I mean, he was driving recklessly as a teenager. As he rounded a corner, this little kid just sort of was crossing the street. He never saw it coming, neither of them. The boy was killed instantly. He was on his way home. And when you sit there and you have to sit and try to tell those parents, and in this particular case, I was a total stranger to them. They didn't know me from anyone. And you have to tell them that their only child, because it was one boy, it was their only boy, that this is it. Their boy had been killed. There's a hurricane of emotions that goes through a person in a moment like that, you might imagine. I mean, first, there's just the being assaulted by that information, and then there's the, the anger and the confusion and everything kind of wells up and you're still trying to figure out how to deal with that particular moment. And then, you know, and then who did it? And there's that blame and you want to get through that and you want to find who it is and you want to go and, and make that better and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And somewhere about 40 minutes into that, same thing, by the way, in a fidelity situation, shock settles up. And you watch because all of this agitation and all of this turns into listlessness. And they just stand and their eyes are glassy. And they just stare off in this space, and they're a shell of the person they were. And this sad part is, you know, they will be that shell for the rest of their life to some degree. Think about that.
things will never change but for the grace of God. Because somewhere in that point, you realize this isn't just about the tragedy of the moment. And yet that moment it's like a swarm of hornets that you're fighting to just try to you know, get away from you. Sooner or later you realize it settles into you that you know, the rest of your life is going to be different. Like, I will ne- I'll never be the same again. You'll never be able to look at that person the same or worse yet, you know. I'll never be able to walk past that room again. I'll never be able to hear a child laugh and respond the same way again. We've had to deal with several gals who have gone through abortion in a very similar situation where they are never told that in the pamphlet. They don't tell you about how when you walk through a park and you see a woman pushing a pram, how that affects you. Or you hear a baby even cry and you wish it was yours even though you were the one who made that choice and that's even harder. You're not, you're not prepared for this. And it settles in your life will never be the same. What about marriage? What it would be like for that night, that day, and that next night where everyone has to do nothing. Perhaps preparing a body weight worth of ointment, burial ointment, maybe that is mildly distracting for a moment. But have you ever thought about the fact that Mary, maybe she just wanted to see Jesus' face one more time? I mean, why do people have open caskets, you know, at their funerals? I think it's a therapy for a lot of the people, isn't it? I mean, you're obviously only looking at a person's jersey. We're aware of the fact there is a soul that dwells within us that we really are. And this is just the tent that we carry until we go and move to our permanent dwelling in heaven. But there's a part of you that knows that maybe this is my chance to say goodbye for my sake. And I wonder if that was Mary's situation. Except that Isaiah told us 700 years before that he would be marred so bad we couldn't even recognize him. The way that he was beat in the face, everything but broken. But I get the idea that Mary just wanted to see his face one more time, no matter how hard it was. And I guarantee you, at this moment, if you kind of went after and tried to play this, Jesus ran off and married her and had a bunch of kids, I think she would have gone off on you. I think one thing that Mary understood at this point was that there was a love deeper and purer than anything that's harvested as romance in the world. If she really had come from a questionable background, like some would like to infer, this would have even been more insulting. But have you ever thought it through what that says? Mary, I remind you, was sponsoring Jesus. She was supporting him financially, and she was doing that to gain romance. What does that make Jesus? I'm not buying that. Well, for many reasons. So what happens when a girl like this shows up at a tomb, and he's gone? Like the only single sense of comfort this girl's going to get at all seeing his face one more time and he's gone. She's not just stiff-lipping it with a tear running down her face. She 
she's a wailing. You would hear her a mile away. And if you've ever lost someone you love, it is painful. But if you've ever lost someone you love unexpectedly, it's like you have trust issues with life. There's a part of you that feels like you'll never... Well, it's like the first time I was in an earthquake. I mean, the ground's never shook like that. You know, it doesn't shake like that in Chicago. So when we moved to California, and then all of a sudden the whole ground just went, <laughs> just kind of moved over. You walk differently from that point on, because you just never know when the next time the ground that you are, that's supposed to be stable and unmoving and supposed to help hold you up now is just going to completely betray you. And that's how life appears at a moment like that, when you don't see it coming and you get blindsided by something like this. Let's be honest. You just never know. I mean, hey, look at I never expected this. Even though Jesus on four occasions had clearly told them he was going to do this, who was listening to that? And if that is you, I understand where you're coming from. When you say to yourself, I didn't think this was going to happen to this person, and if this person isn't immune, who is? But Mary's on her way there at dawn to see him one last time. And she is dragging him with her. Heavier than the weight, I would imagine, of every girl in this room. And a couple of the guys, too, now that I look at them. Mark tells us that she's not alone. She goes there with a few other gals. And they're on their way there, and somewhere it occurs to them, they ask, Oh, wait a minute, we've got this giant stone. How's that going to get rolled away? It hadn't occurred to them up to that point, because, let's face it, they've been too consumed with a whole lot of other things. Jewish burial law allows you to actually anoint a body up to seven days afterwards in honor of the dead. You wrap it in linen cloths, and then you immerse it in this gelatinous goo that's basically aloe vera and a handful of, uh, of spices, cinnamon and, and, uh, and perfumes, things like myrrh, which by the way, only goes as it said when crushed. Interesting things that Jesus had received. Two of the three things Jesus received is his birth would be used on his burial. And when that has three days, if you will, sticking in a cool of a tomb, that becomes a body cast. Have you ever thought that through? It wasn't like Jesus kind of came out as a mummy. Jesus kind of had to pop out of that you know, body cast, which is weird as it is. And then you have to deal with an obvious problem here. If someone's going to steal the body, do you strip it naked first? That's weird on every level. Mary goes and she looks and she sees the tomb rolled away, or the, the stone rolled away. And you're probably aware of the fact that Jesus didn't roll away the stone so that he could get out. He could walk through walls, that becomes evident. Jesus had the stone rolled away so we could get in and look. Now consider this. Mary takes a look inside. Now, as she takes a look in, inside, she sees a very strange thing. And the only person we have recorded that sees this is Mary. She sees two angels. And she sees between them. Do you know the last time a woman has looked between the angels? It was Eve. 
when God removed them from the garden of their sin and placed angels to guard the entrance back into this place God called pleasure. It's what Eden means. In between that point and this point, two angels sat on a bloody seat that God called the Bema, the mercy seat of the ark. Some of you are familiar with that. But only one guy saw that, and it wasn't a woman, it was a guy, and that was during Yom Kippur. And that was the high priest of Kohen Gadol. He was the only guy who saw this over here. Well, what's interesting is, maybe you're aware of that, after Solomon's temple was destroyed in 721 B.C., 722 B.C., that ark has disappeared, which means the entire temple Jesus was walking in never had an ark in it. Have you ever thought that through? And now a woman is looking through those angels one more time. Like a high priest that would have looked and put the blood on that mercy seat in between, this girl is looking. And notice it tells us the angels, one's at the foot and one's at the head. Do you think that there's a purpose that God would tell us that? It's exactly the term that God uses in regards to a seat. And in between would be the bloody seat where Jesus had laid. And they say, hey, why are you crying? She says, because they took away my Lord. And I don't know where he is. Isn't it interesting? Everyone seemed to blame somebody else for stealing the body. The religious leaders had assumed that the disciples would steal it initially because after all, that would be their way to perpetrate the religion. But Mary would assume, who, the, the religious leaders stole it? It doesn't have to make an awful lot of sense when I like this, does it? But let's face it, if they really wanted to stop this whole Jesus resurrected thing, all they had to do was produce a body. That would have been easy. Now, as this is the case. Look at our verses and we'll go through it quickly in our last couple of minutes. Jesus has been walking and he's approaching Mary as she's weeping. It tells us that, again, I remind you, Peter and John had looked into the, the temple, they, or temple, they looked into the tomb, they walked out because Jesus wasn't there. They hadn't considered the verses that had been very clear and evident that Jesus would resurrect from the dead. It tells us, for instance, and I'll give you a couple, Psalm 16:10 says, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow the Holy One to see corruption. Isaiah 26:19 says, Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Hosea 6:2 says, After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. But Jesus had said in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 9, 31, that he would be betrayed into the hands of men. They would kill him, and after he was killed, he would raise on the third day. Jesus would say in Luke 18.33 that they will scourge and kill him and on the third day he will rise again. And it's interesting, the disciples hear that information and then they discuss among themselves what that meant. And nobody seemed to get it. This is one of the dangers of those kind of Bible studies, you know, where you read a verse and then everyone just talks about what it could mean. But no one's actually ever studied the verse. No one's ever done anything. Well, no, I don't think it could be this. And imagine that. Jesus is like, I'm going to die and resurrect. And they all turn to each other. What do you think that means, guys? Well, I think he's speaking kind of, you know, metaphorically. And I don't know. Maybe he'll go away to pray for a day. And then he'll kind of pop back. And, and I realize, as I think about this, that everyone else think, seems to think that someone took Jesus, except for Jesus. Of course, he knows what's going on here. And nobody ever seemed to get any of these promises that he's made. But don't miss this now. As God highlights this beautiful situation, 
Everybody else is trying to figure this out. And again, I remind you, Peter and John have gone back to their homes. But Mary stayed. When everyone else may be trying to figure out how to get their life back, their old life back, well, that's the last thing Mary wants, isn't it? Mary's just trying to figure out how to get her Jesus back. I have to ask myself something here. Would this happen to me? If for a brief moment I didn't know if I could sense Jesus being near me, would it cause a mild panic at my at least in me? Do you remember in the beginning when Jesus would go alone to pray and his disciples and they'd all kind of all fall asleep together somewhere, you know, because Jesus was homeless with them. And then he would run off to pray before dawn and they would wake up and not see him and they would be frantically searching for him. They're like, oh my goodness, where is he? Where is he? We've lost everything. Where is he? And, and I realized one of the reasons I don't freak out when I don't sense him being around is I don't know if I've really left anything anymore for him. So Jesus was gone when I noticed. Notice it says they've taken away my Lord. He's just the Lord. You probably won't sense this either. Why are you, Clio, why are you openly wailing like this? Then Jesus steps in. And she, according to verse 15, notice it says, assumed him to be the gardener. So she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Isn't it interesting how our distress could often diminish our ability to see Jesus right in the midst of our misery? We get so consumed in a moment where everything is so mucked up in front of us. We just can't see Jesus in the middle of it. Most of means everything else but himself. It's like, oddly enough, aren't you the guy that took away my Savior? Remember, she just wanted to see his face one more time. She's staring at him and can't even recognize him. Jesus then finally says, Bitter. That's what her name means. Mary. What does the resurrection mean to her? It's more than just that sin was an ideal that's been paid. It's more than just that hell is a place that's been vanquished. It's more than just a devil is a character that's been defeated. Jesus' resurrection means that the sin that she was bound to, the hell that once shackled her and the devil who once pulled those chains, been defeated and triumphed over forever. She'll never have to fear her past again. They will never again be a threat. They will never again be able to overpower her without her saying. Jesus is more than a world changer. He's a hope restorer. In all new life and dreams are restored. Her past is vanquished and her future is his. And I just want to ask you something. What part of the past do you need to let go of? parts still haunt you. I know it may be hard to believe, but I was an angry, violent, quiet, brooding individual before Jesus. I never spoke to anyone. I wouldn't look you in the face. I hated people. My life was miserable. The way that I had seen in my childhood what relationships looked like the kids and women were treated kept me out of a serious relationship my whole life I had never sincerely had never asked a girl out in my life until my wife had never been in a serious relationship because man I would rather die than treat a woman the way I saw women treated in my life 
But that actually was the second greatest step of faith and proof that I don't believe I was could that that task could ever return. There are two beautiful girls that bear our name that didn't marry them. And neither had a choice. And if I really believed that my past was coming to haunt me, not only would I have never been married, I most certainly never would have had children. And I am determined to show them a father that looks like Scripture. They don't have to like it, but they have to deal with a dad who loves them, whether they like it or not. Oh, they love it. They just won't tell you. I'm here to let you know that Jesus' resurrection means so much more than just an ideal. Or that way, yay, we pick the right one. Jesus' resurrection started with a death, and in the same way, so is your life. Not just the muck, but every part of it. You lay it before the Lord, and you say, you know what? I give you permission every part of this. Romans 1 tells us it is the resurrection that declares Jesus to be the Son of God. That is fundamental. Because there are those that say God had no son, and it would make sense since the guy who actually propagated that lie actually bailed on his own family. He, was, he had no idea how to be a father, so I wouldn't expect it. But I'm here to let you know my, my God is a father, and he is the father that every one of us needs. And I praise God he's still open for adoption. But when you come to him, maybe you've bounced off of him, like maybe Mary did. Had an effect on your life for a little bit, but you kind of ran back into the old thing and you found it worse than it was before and you said it didn't work and then you realized that's even worse. Cry out to him today. And he's here, what about the hopes that you've had? Now I'm not talking about selfish dreams and ambitions, but I'm talking about the things you know God's placed in your heart that somehow at this point is a quivering, small batch of smoking embers. Try to explain to Paul when he was hiding on the southeast coast of Turkey, trying to live a normal life, that he was going to be a world changer after trying it for a little bit and it didn't work out. Perhaps as long as eight years. Until Barnabas shows up at his house and says, there's a whole new church started by a bunch of people who ran from you when you weren't a Christian. And now they need a pastor and I think you should be the guy. You couldn't have written that script, could you? So good luck on trying to live normal. Since I don't believe in luck, I can just say that flippantly. Because he has called you to more than that. But if we're going to be Christ-like and call ourselves Christians, then we're going to be people that are going to help see people restoring their faith and their trust. Imagine sitting with that parent after a day and actually bringing that boy back alive and bringing him back to a parents that would have done to them. Wouldn't it have been shock again at first? Wouldn't it have been another flurry of emotions? But then to be able to say, wait a minute, and then it starts to settle in, wait a minute. Why am I just never going to be the same again? But this time, I'm here to say as we go to prayer and have communion on this day, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus, but right now you're kind of holding on this mamby-pamby faith thing, now I'm not saying faith mamby-pamby, I'm saying yours is or mine is. Where now our trust in Him is like, prove it, which is no real trust at all, let's be honest. Because somewhere down the line we've had expectations and they haven't come out the way we thought 
thought they would. And somehow we're thinking, well, there's no way it could be better than what it was, because my plans were pretty darn awesome. And now all of a sudden I'm kind of looking and going, God, I knew you put this in my heart, so something went wrong. And somehow when it, I don't want to say it, but it seems like you failed. Then maybe it would be Mary that would sit down with you and go, Oh, I know what you're feeling. But you have no idea how good it's going to get. Maybe it's someone that's failed yourself and you know it. You've blown it and you've gone, There's just no way. Maybe it's Peter who would sit you down at that moment and go, Oh, I know how you feel. But you have no idea how good it's going to get. But I've waited so long. Maybe it's Abraham would have to sit you down. Imagine going, you have no idea how long I've had to hear this woman say her biological clock is ticking. And she's like, my biological clock has stopped. God's like, but he can raise the dead. Now I'm not asking you to foolishly dream and demand. I'm asking for you to listen in faith. Because my God wants to resurrect something today in you. And that's a faith that anything that He says is not only possible, it's on the to-do list. And let's face it, for some of you that would be a Lazarus experience. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, what are you going to put your trust in that's better than this? The one who paid for all of your guilt. Hey, maybe you're afraid, let's be honest. Maybe you're afraid that if you have to confront that thing one more time, you'll be so out of control emotionally. Maybe Mary would sit you down on that one too, wouldn't she? Because, oh, I know what it's like to be in that. I can understand why this Mary would run to the guys and they think she was talking gibberish because she had probably often talked gibberish before Jesus got hold of her. But what if today God actually just spoke to your heart and you were willing to listen and say, just trust me. Just trust me. Step with me. Just step and follow. Like I tried that. Because I haven't stopped walking. Like, well, shouldn't we be there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You'll know when you're there. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you that chance. When He died for you on the cross and rose again, and on this day we celebrate a whole new life that you never have to go back to the old. It's dead and buried. That's what Romans makes clear. And First Corinthians, for that's what Second Corinthians five makes that even more clear. Now. But if you have given your life to Jesus Christ on this Communion Sunday, I'm asking for you to do something brave, and that's to ask God to rip out your doubt. To give you that valiant, brave faith you once held on to. Like a sword that slaughtered any enemy that got near you. We pray with you. Lord, you're so good to us. You didn't have to call us by name. You could have called us by people group or by location, but you didn't. Because shepherds don't do that. Shepherds call their sheep by name. 
And good shepherds know more than just their name. They know their personalities, they know their weaknesses, they know their dangers. Thank you for being not only a good shepherd, but being the good shepherd. I think David must have known when he says, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to even be afraid there because I know you're with me. And I pray first for every believer in here, myself included, that you put a frantic spirit in us for those moments where we would wander in a way so that we would try to be less influenced by your presence. Or we'd start making consolations because somehow, if we're going to be honest, we're going to actually listen to the enemy who's accused you of failing us. And I pray that would not be the case today, but today you would reignite a spark, a hope. You would widen our horizon and show us a a sunrise instead of a dawn. Because at the sunset, Jesus, you died, but at the sunrise, you rose while you're alive. And in that, I just pray right now, God, for those of us who have held on to things with a greater valiance and a greater vigor and a greater vehemence, but now, Lord, it just seems like we're more the fractured reed or the smoldering flax. Today we ignite, we light, make us that light of the world you intend us to be. And here in this room and at the sound of this voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want to give you that choice. You don't have to earn it, he's already paid your bill, but he's asking for your permission, he wants your okay on this. And to do that, we accept Jesus not just as our ransom and Savior, but as our Lord, as we give Him permission to rebuild this new life He's given us, this resurrected life. And if that's you, I don't have to convince you, that's God's Spirit's job, but I am here to lead you in a simple prayer. And if that's you, pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I would, in my own merit, I stand before you guilty. But because you love me, you've paid the price for my guilt by hanging your son on a cross. And when he died there, my bill was paid. And when he was buried, my guilty verdict was buried with him. But when he rose again, I have a new life offered to me. And you give me that choice, and I say yes. I hand you this mess I've made. And I ask for you to reinvent me in a way that brings you pleasure and amazes me. Put a hope in me, a life in me that's beyond my wildest imagination. Make me the person you want to make me. Declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Say, have me now. Father in heaven, adopt me as your own. In Jesus' name.